0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are, or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 187 of the Swallow Pride podcast, and today we have two guests. We have Dr. Ashwini, Nama McDonald, and Dr. Samantha Shue. Ashwini is an assistant professor and speech-language pathologist at McMaster University. She also directs the Aging Swallow Research Lab. Her research specializes in dysphagia in older adults. Ashwini's goal is to produce clinically relevant research to inform frontline practice. Her current research is focused on dysphagia in people living with dementia and dysphagia-related caregiver burden. She was the 2020 recipient of the ASHA Award for Early Career Contributions in Research. Samantha Schoon is an assistant professor at the Director of the Communication Disorders and Sciences Program at the University of Oregon. She also directs the Optimizing Swallowing and Eating for the Elderly Lab. Her research interests include the effects of healthy and pathological aging on the physiologic and psychosocial aspects of swallowing and mealtimes. She's particularly interested in better understanding shared food-related activities as opportunities to therapeutically target improved quality of life, for both older adults and their social networks, for example, partners and
1: family members.
0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the Medislp Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, hello it's me again got a few questions for you are you feeling the burden of imposter syndrome at work are you afraid that faking it until you make it really is not the right answer don't know how to make your case for the things you need you can't get the administrator to agree to an instrumental unsure of yourself when talking to the nurse practitioner or medical director in the building are you looking to have positive outcomes with treatments while giving your patients the best in evidence-based practice you're looking for a promotion or a raise or just a positive change from where you are now in your career well we have something that can help you find the solutions to these problems medical slp collective is what you need in your professional life to take your career to the next level if you have a professional question any professional question we have a resource or a mentor that can help you we also have a library of webinars registered for asha ceus just for you And if we don't have it, we will make it. We use our proprietary review process to make sure that it is based on evidence-based practice. We are a real community and we are so much better together. I am Teresa Richard and my team cannot wait to welcome you into the MetaSLP Collective. Enrollment is open from May 17th to May 27th and then we will be closing enrollment down for a few months. So I hope you join us now. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon and good morning to both of you. We've got a few different time zones here. <laughs> all right, so, so welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you.
2: Yes. Yes. All right. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. Ashwini, do you want to go first? Sure. So my name is Ashwini Nemesivaya McDonald. I'm an assistant professor at McMaster University. Um, My research really focuses on dysphagia in older adults. And then back in, I guess, end of 2016, 2017, um, I had really been looking at dysphagia in um, dementia and long-term care. I started this, what started really as a passion project, looking at caregiver burden, and I um, was looking for a partner in crime. So um, a colleague suggested that I reach out to Samantha, who was also interested in this topic. And we started researching a little bit and realized there wasn't a lot on dysphagia related caregiver burden and so we um, started our whole line of research on this, which has become a huge focus, I think, of both of our um, research uh, programs of
1: research. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll jump in next. So um, I'm Samantha Schoon. I am an assistant professor at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon. And um, similar, very similar to Shwini's story, my research really focuses on uh, dysphagia in older adults, and I've always really had an interest in looking beyond the swallow. So looking at the other factors that are involved in eating and drinking and meal times, and how those interact with dysphagia and swallowing impairments. And so this understanding of the impact of dysphagia on the person, the impact of dysphagia on the family and caregiver really naturally grew um, from that line of research. And um, it, it's really been great being able to work with Ishwini. And I'm really glad that we got linked up um, a couple of years ago, because I do think that we've been able to do a lot in this area in the past few years.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, I totally agree. So what, what do you what do you guys want to talk about today? What's the uh, overarching theme here today? I mean, I think it would be good to talk about why we should think about caregiver burden why especially dysphagia related caregiver burden what that means what are the implications for the caregivers and how we can support them yeah
0: awesome and i you know I, I know everybody knows stories about my son but i obviously love i love following your guys work because i think it's so important that nobody i don't want to say nobody thinks of of this but it's not it's, it's not something that's top of mind for a lot of clinicians you know we just make our recommendations we we do the best that we can. We we, you know, help to to support the family as much as we can, you know, with the best recommendations, but sometimes forget that the things that we might recommend are just can sometimes just be really hard to carry out. And, you know, I I'm someone that I have this double-edged sword of knowing all I know about SLP and then also living the reality at home. And it's it's tough. It's so tough to want to do what's best for my son, but also have 97 million other things going on that I some balls get dropped. And yeah, it's not intentional. It's not because I'm a cruddy mom. It's not because I'm a cruddy SLP. It's just it's hard to Do everything that, you know, we think we're supposed to do.
2: So well, and that other people think you're supposed to do too, right? It's not just what you think, but it's what you know other people expect of you, while also taking care of yourself to ensure that, you know, you are the best mom and SLP and business owner and wife, et cetera, et cetera, possible.
1: I think that's exactly the piece that people forget too, is that people have lives. People have lives outside of what's happening in the therapy room. And We just assume that caregivers are gonna want to do whatever they have to do. And I think we also assume that caregivers are capable of doing whatever they have to do and what we ask them to do. And that's, you know, as I reflect back on my clinical practice before I went back to get my PhD and and while I was getting my PhD as well, I, I honestly can't think of a time that I ever asked, say a spouse or a caregiver you know, does this all make sense? Are you able to do this? How does this fit into your daily life? And I think that's what really drives a lot of this is the recognition that we have to make that shift. It's not sustainable to just keep operating under those assumptions that, you know, they can do it all and they have nothing else going on and they have no questions or that they even want to do it. I think that's another assumption that we make. Um, and perhaps, You know, there's certainly some cultural implications wrapped into there um, across uh, different groups of individuals as well. But it's a big assumption that they will be the caregiver and that they're okay being the caregiver. So,
0: yeah, I think that's the hardest part, really, is just having all these different exercises and strategies from a myriad of different therapists. You know, it's not common to just only be working with a patient with with just dysphagia you know, usually, uh, you know, in our family, we have OT, we have PT, we have everything else going on. And I've got to remember, okay, I need to be doing these exercises and these strategies. And there's not enough minutes in the day to get to these exercises. And, and I think for me, what, what really stuck out with different therapists that we have had is like, what's going to be functional for you? Like, what will you remember to do? What is convenient for your family to do? You know, what are your what are your functional goals as a family? And that sometimes doesn't look like sitting and doing traditional exercises. You know, it might be eating a a food in the car that's, you know, he's able to pick up by himself, you know, just, so I really truly appreciate those therapists that think outside of the, not necessarily outside of the box, but outside of just the patient that really include the family and how the carryover is going to be best because that's really
2: what what helps to get the buy-in yeah long term. Yeah, so. I think it really comes down to what's realistic and feasible, right? Like, and I think so many times as clinicians, we think, well, you know, if they did these 10 things, they would be, you know, they wouldn't even have this phase anymore. But it's like, but if that's not realistic and feasible and you overall month the 10 things and they don't even do one now, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not even gonna move forward in any way, right? So I think, you know, taking those baby steps and understanding how to take those baby steps is so important.
1: And I I do think self-efficacy really plays a role here as well, that if a caregiver feels they can't do it, it's going to be harder than to do it. And I think there's the possibility that we can set caregivers up for failure by giving them that list of 10 things. So we give them a list of 10 things. They're so overwhelmed. They don't even do one thing. So then they feel like a failure as a caregiver. Mm -hmm, They come back mm -hmm. to therapy the next week. You know, maybe they're also less likely to tell us the truth about how that week went because they're kind of ashamed at, gosh, you gave me these few things to do and I couldn't even do that. And then it creates this negative downward spiral that, that ultimately no one is being helped. Um, And so, you know, I think that's a big piece of it, too, is how do we lift caregivers up? How do we inspire them? How do we empower them to be able to be in control of the situation or for the family to be in control of the situation? Because ultimately, I think that's what it is. And, you know, I love what you had said, Teresa, about centering the family and what are the family's functional goals. And I, I do think the pediatric population sometimes that comes up a bit more so we think about early intervention and in-home care and really this model of the the child within their environment within their home environment what are their needs and then when we get to the adult side of things we seem to forget that like i think even as a as a child gets older therapy becomes less family focused and becomes more individual focus and then we get into adulthood and it's all about the patient themselves. And so I think really thinking about the family as the unit that we're treating is a direction that we need to be moving to, um, particularly with dysphagia care.
2: I mean, I think it might be good to talk about, I mean, maybe our research trajectory, and then we can put in the clinical pieces as we go, because I think that naturally Mm -hmm.
1: flows. Yeah. So I I think uh, Ashwini and I both really agree when we think about where we got really interested in this as a line of research was a lot of the work um, by Rebecca Nund and her colleagues at the University of Queensland. And, um, you know, really reading some of her work was one of those moments that for the first time, it, it actually started to click for me. It really gave me insight into the fact that we aren't just working with a single patient when we talk about dysphagia care, that we really are working with a dyad, working with a family, working with a group of individuals. And um, in particular, I know for me, one of the first articles that I recall was her qualitative work, just really exploring the experiences of caregivers, um, providing care for individuals with dysphagia following head and neck cancer and reading through that article and listening to these caregivers, first person accounts of what does it actually mean to be doing this? What does it actually mean to be living with someone um, with dysphagia and their recognition of how dysphagia, you know, ultimately disrupts the cycle of daily life that That the impacts of dysphagia were not limited to the individual with dysphagia alone, but were really disrupting the daily life of the entire family, such that they really had to kind of accommodate to this new normal. And that really started getting me thinking, um, you know, again, what is our role of therapists in this? Is there um, opportunities for us to become engaged or more engaged with these family members to minimize some of the, the disruptions or at least to educate them on what might happen. Because I think that's another big piece of it as well is um, these individuals feeling a lack of support. So say, for example, you're in the hospital setting um, and this was you know specifically with head and neck cancer and you have all the care in the world when you're in the hospital setting. And then all of a sudden you go home And there's no one. There's no one helping you to prepare foods or liquids. There's no one helping you, you know, to to give you reminders about strategies or how to do things. It's just you being in charge of all of this. And so, um, you know, what is the role? of the speech language pathologist in being able to make sure that they feel supported throughout the trajectory of care. And can that help minimize some of the psychosocial impacts then of dysphagia that if these individuals feel more supported, if they have more education, if they even know that this is going to happen, because that's another thing, and I think um, I do do like to jump a little bit. Sorry, I think it's something that that I've also seen in some of the work that I'm doing um, currently in interviewing stroke survivors and their family members, is that people think that this is just going to get better, right? Like, oh yeah, you know they're having some problems eating and drinking right now, but it's going to get better. It's not going to be this long term thing. And so if we can, um, you know, really empower these families with this information about here's what might happen, here's what happens to other people. I just, I feel like they um, can adapt better. And, And that's a big word that I think we often talk about is resiliency, resiliency and adaptation. So, you know, it started with reading Dr. Nunn's work and then kind of evolved over time. But I do, I think, you know, her articles were the first time that I really sat down and said, yeah, you know, this is this is a big issue. This is a very widespread um, issue across the entire family.
2: Yeah. And she, of course, introduced us to that concept of third party disability. Right. So the disability of the caregiver as a result of the disability of the care recipient, which mm-hmm. has really driven our work and helped to explain our work. And really. So after reading her work and that was, as Samantha mentioned, focused on head and neck cancer, we thought, OK, well, you know, who? If we had to pick one population that maybe required the most caregiver support to focus on for right now, who would that be? And we figured what would be these community-dwelling older adults, the people who are living with their family members. So we decided to do a review of the literature, a systematic review to really look at, okay, so what does past research tell us about these community dwelling older adults who live with their um, caregivers and what are their caregivers reporting in terms of burden. And, you know, in addition to uh, what Rebecca Nunn's works talked about in negotiating a new normal, you know, these caregivers were reporting increased fear and anxiety related to their responsibilities. They were worried about nutrition status and choking which is not really surprising. We They reported, you know, dramatic shifts in um, daily routines and really increased schedule rigidity. So like they felt like they had no ability to do what they wanted to do. And they even talked a little bit about feeding tubes and, you know, you would think in theory that feeding tubes would ease some anxieties, but there was actually a lot more anxieties around even making the decision to put in a feeding tube, cleaning it. They felt like they weren't prepared for all of that. So really that first review helped inform us, you know, what is going on? What are they reporting? And are these things that we can actually help with? And really the answer was yes, okay, we can inform them, we can give them more information, you know, to help them make that decision about the feeding tube or how to clean it or, you know, how do you, what do you do if someone's choking, or what do you think do if you know, you think they're malnourished and they're not getting enough. And maybe it's not just us, but if we work as a team and it's not just SLP, SLP, but recognize, you know, this is our scope, but you know, maybe the dietitian, we can work with the dietitian closely, and maybe we can work with an OT and maybe we can work with a social worker and really that like team approach and that family-centered care was really what needed to what we need to work towards and our research is still working towards that but that that review is really that first step in recognizing that okay there are these issues but they can be resolved like we can ease these burdens and i think that was a big moment for us in realizing okay this is something that we should continue to look at and continue to work on
0: i, I love it and i think you know, a, a lot of times, like, like, for me, what's hard is that, I mean, my son has, you know, an intellectual disability, he has low mental capacity, so he, he does not going to do exercises on his own. It's completely up to me and my husband to essentially do them with him, you know, and I remember when I used to be working, like in home health, and I mean, I'd still see these really sick patients at home, you know, they'd have a hospital bed at home, they'd be on Feeding tube beyond event, you know, you're not you are treating the patient, but you're essentially teaching the family everything they need to know to help the family member, and it's up to them to either carry out what you're suggesting or not. So, I, I think this is such a such a huge part of what we should be doing that I don't know that we are
2: doing a very good job of. Yeah, 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 and and I think also the other thing people forget or. It's easy to forget. I shouldn't. I wish, I'm not trying. We're not trying to blame anyone or say that they're doing their yeah, 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 job yeah. incorrectly. But I think we forget that you know, meal times are yeah, they're they're to get nutrition into and whatever, whatever. But there's this huge social aspect that brings together a family or brings together friends or whoever. Right? If you think about all of our. Um, you know, cultural celebrations, regardless of your culture or ethnicity, they're usually centered around food. And now when you're taking that away from both the caregiver and the care recipient, when you can't just eat whatever is placed or whatever your traditional food is for for that celebration, that's a lot of pressure, right? That's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of thought and intentional activity that goes now to to preparing those meals so that everyone can be included? Can you even go to those social gatherings? So, you know, not only is there this physical burden, but we're seeing these emotional burdens too. So, and I just think we don't think about that a lot. And I just actually, we had an undergrad student do a survey of clinicians just this past year to look at, you know, how to of SLPs who work with people um, with adults and they, we asked them, you know, how do you define caregiver burden? What does this mean to you? And the most people responded physical strain, which, you know, you can understand and maybe you see a little bit, but a lot of people, we only had 10% of respondents, I believe, talk about social strain, right? How is, what are the social implications? And we had about, about half talk about psychological strain, but we're,
1: it just shows we're focused on these physical things. And we don't always think about the other aspects. Yeah. And um, I just want to build on that for a moment, too, because uh, so what I think is fascinating, we continued our line of work and we really wanted to look at what dysphagia's contribution was to general burden. So we know what the implications are day to day, um, you know, from some of the other work that we've talked about. But what about when we think about the the bigger picture of burden? Because like both of you have said already thus far, dysphagia is just one piece of a puzzle. Like there often is for these individuals many things going on. And so um, we actually did two studies where we drew on data from um, national databases. So large sample sizes, we had over 400 um, spouse pairings and then over 800 Um, pairings of an individual with dysphagia and a child's caregiver, so an adult child caregiver. And um, for those, we really wanted to look at, does dysphagia contribute to just more general burden? So if you ask someone, do you experience physical burden, do you experience emotional burden, and do you experience financial burden as a result of providing care among both of those groups, so spousal caregivers and children caregivers, both of those said or we found um, that they were experiencing increased emotional burden that was associated with dysphagia. So dysphagia was an independent predictor of just general emotional burden in these caregivers. And that's when accounting for other factors that we know contribute to caregiver burden. So age and gender and um, the different diseases that the the patients were experiencing even when accounting for all of those dysphagia still emerged as an independent predictor of emotional caregiver burden and pretty substantially too so um, for those spousal caregivers spouses caring for an individual with dysphagia were more than two times more likely to experience emotional burden than spouses, for indiv- spouses of individuals who did not experience dysphagia. And um, for the, the children caregivers, it was more than one and a half times more likely. And so I think that's you know, exactly what you're getting at, Shweeney, too, is that there are these clear, emotional, social, psychological ramifications of providing care for an individual with dysphagia. And, and widespread impacts that it's their overall, how do you feel emotionally? Do you feel emotionally burdened because you are providing care? And the answer is yes. And at least a portion of that is attributed to the dysphagia itself. And so I think that has just really continued to motivate us and drive our research to say, you know, what can we do? these individuals are struggling right it's it's not just the person with dysphagia who's struggling it's their care providers it's their family who are missing out on all these different life activities and and life emotions and perhaps this feeling of normalcy and what is it that we can do and what is it that we should be doing um, to address that
2: yeah and I think I mean it might be a good time to highlight like you know, what are, we've talked about this caregiver, concept caregiver burden, but really what are the implications on the caregivers? And what's so interesting is when you look across the literature, you know, caregivers suffer from symptoms of depression and anxiety. They experience these other physical multimorbidities, decreased physical health. They report chronic stress, decreased immunity, even lower uh, levels of self-efficacy, subjective and lower subjective well-being they also are less likely to monitor their own health and their individual needs right so like there are huge implications so if the caregiver can't even take care of the care recipient now because they have all these things going on how are we ever going to expect our care recipients to get better right so there's this interdependent relationship between the care the health of the caregiver and the health of the care recipient and becomes this vicious cycle so you know with long wait lists and, you know, our healthcare system is being overloaded. We're not doing ourselves any favors by by not paying attention to the caregivers. Yeah.
0: And I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Simply Thick. Now that ITZY allows you the option to use a thinner consistency, now Simply Thick does too. Simply Thick Easy Mix introduces the first slightly thick ITZY level one individual packets in the U.S., All the same features you know and love about Simply Thick in easy-to-mix packets. For a free sample kit, check out www.simplythick.com forward slash S-Y-P. That's www.simplythick.com forward slash S-Y-P.
1: And I want to say, I mean, again, none of this is blame because I think this is hard. And I think when we start to ask ourselves, you know, why don't we do more? Where is the hesitation? There are a lot of factors involved there. I mean, one, I think people don't feel prepared. Clinicians don't feel prepared when we think about some of the training that we receive. You know when we think about our dysphagia class and how even dysphagia class has evolved um i mean from first not having a required dysphagia class to having a required dysphagia class but that dysphagia class really covers you know anatomy and physiology because that's what we have time to cover in the classroom how do you then build in all these other pieces and so i think um as programs start to integrate a little bit more counseling into their programs you know students are getting some more exposure to that um, people are getting exposure in the field, but a lot of times people just don't feel like they have the skills to do that. Uh, it can be scary too. Cause I even think about, you know, asking that question anytime we ask that question, especially right now during COVID, like, how are you, what is someone going to say on the other end? Like is someone just going to do that social nicety of like, I'm okay. or I'm doing pretty well, all things considered, or is that really, you know, opening up for a, a who knows what, who knows what's on the other side. And I think a lot of us are often afraid of what that answer might be. You know, do I have time? Do I have the skill? Unfortunately with our healthcare system, am I going to be reimbursed for that time that I then spend engaging with this family and listening to what they say? You know, I, I just, I think there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and, that's another opportunity, I think, that we can see in our profession for advancement. So, how do we better prepare to engage in these conversations? How do we feel more comfortable with this? Are we aware of what resources are out there? Again, you know, it's not meant to be the speech pathologist in isolation. Do we have a social worker or couples and family therapist or some other counselor who's part of our staff, who's part of our team? who can be talking to that family member. Maybe while the SLP is engaged in therapy with the patient, the family member can have a little bit of time um, with a counselor or a therapist to be talking through some of this as well. So I don't think any of it is us here saying like the SLP has to do it alone. No, it's, it's the SLP has to work with a team, create this team, create this environment where this is accepted, this is the norm. It's typical to ask someone how they're doing, and then depending on how they reply, to to refer them to an appropriate service that can um, help meet their needs for what they're encountering and what's going on in their life at that moment.
0: Yeah, I, I think you know to kind of expand on what you said, Samantha. I think you know asking the floodgate question of how are you can sometimes be absolutely be intimidating, but I don't think it needs to be that broad. I think for me, you know, as a mother, as a caregiver, it's just so helpful sometimes for, for a therapist to just say, you know, what can I help you with? You know, is there anything going on at home, like speech-wise, feeding-wise, that any questions I can answer for you? And, and almost like, usually when they ask things like that, I'm like, oh yeah, like this, like we had an episode with this this week and everything turned so chaotic after that. But like, just kind of the generic how are you i'm not going to i'm just going to say fine you know life's how of you know wonderful as it is but i think just coming from a place of of service i think it is kind of cliche as that sounds just how can i help you you know what what can i do to make things a little bit easier and it may not be what you had planned for therapy that day you know i think you know, a lot of type ASLPs go in with, you know, we have to accomplish this, 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 and this in our session today. And as a parent, sometimes I don't give a crap about your, you know, checklist of things because we had this other crisis at home that I really hope you can help us out with. So I think just having some of those targeted questions to begin with can be super helpful for both of us, because then I can get some clarity on the situation. And then I am happy to move into,
2: you know, the next exercises or whatever we're doing from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the literature does show that, you know, we, and anecdotally, we know that if we support them and we, you know, help caregivers develop these really problem-focused strategies, they can really, they'll move forward, right? They'll, if, you know, if you say, you know whatever you had whatever issue with feeding and we come at it and we we solve it together then we're we're building some skills there right and we're building some skills so that you know next time you might think even if the situation is a little bit different you might have some skills to address it and then you can come back and give us feedback and we can work together to continue to move forward rather than just focusing on what are the symptoms you see directly in that session of the care recipient
1: yeah and i really like that idea of of being specific because you're right you know when you ask something that's so broad and so open-ended, people aren't going to think about what they actually need necessarily in the moment. And um, I think that was a little bit of what has also driven us to create a a tool, a screening tool that clinicians can use to help maybe identify some of those specific areas that caregivers might need um, support in so that it's not just this Open-ended conversation, but it can actually be much more of a, a guided conversation about, you know, oh, I see that that you rated this as being more difficult. Like, let's let's talk about that. How did that go? What is that like in your household? You know, how does that interaction appear? Um, so, yeah, I think that was that's exactly you know speaking to what you had mentioned. So we developed this, um, it's really a
2: screening tool. It's called the caregiver analysis of reported experiences with swallowing disorders. And really it was a tool we developed to help clinicians identify what the problems might be, right? So where are the caregivers feeding, What, what is the source of burden? And if you can identify the problem, A, can you can you identify if it's something that's within your scope to help with, or do you need to make a referral out, right? So understanding that we're not in this alone, the SLP is not expected to do everything. So our goals really were A, to help identify the sources of burden, B, help address the sources of burden, right? By deciding is it, is it within the scope of practice of the SLP or do they need to refer out? And we also wanted something that was feasible, that um, was simple that maybe a care recipient could even, uh, sorry, a caregiver could do outside of the session. You know, you didn't need someone guiding them to do it. So we end up coming up with this 26-item checklist. And essentially there's two parts to this checklist. The first part is a checklist of behavioral and functional changes, and then a checklist of subjective caregiver stress. So I mean, I can give an example. One of the questions uh, on the checklist of behavioral and functional changes is because of my loved one's swallowing difficulties, extra time is required for mealtime. So example, finding appropriate foods, cooking meals, preparing two feedings, watching my loved one eat or drink. And then we ask that in in the past month, has this situation bothered you? So yes, no, or it's not applicable. So it kind of gives the clinician some frame of reference. Is this something we need to be concerned about at all because it's not even applicable? Or is this something that, you know, is a problem. And then we have that checklist of subjective caregiver stress. So there are things like I do not feel prepared to help manage my loved one's swallowing difficulty example related to tube feeding, thickened liquids, or even performing the Heimlich. So right away, if they say yes to that, you know, has this um, statement been true to you from in the past month, we can say, okay, this is what we need to target. This is a specific education you need. And I think, you know, Teresa, something that stood out to me when you were saying about, you know, asking specific questions is this really gets us at the specifics, right? And sometimes maybe things that caregivers aren't thinking about that are bothering them, right? And, you know, they, I mean, I can't imagine they have time to think about all these 26 concepts, but if we lay them out and they can maybe think, reflect and think, okay, maybe this is the problem. And maybe this is a source of my stress. And maybe if I knew a little bit more about this, I would feel a little bit more relieved. And, you know, we're not saying that this is going to be the be-all and end-all solution just for caregiver burden. But if we can do our part a little bit, I think we can help our care recipients and, you know, drive the whole field forward and thinking that taking this family-centered, multidisciplinary approach to care.
0: I I think also, Ashwini, just having a a therapist or someone on the other side that shows compassion and that, wants to to not even understand what you're going through but just really just hold space for what you're feeling you know and and i can't possibly expect people to understand what's going on a lot of times but just them opening kind of the floodgates just opening the doors to me being able to say what's going on or what we're experiencing just build so much more rapport and so much more trust with that person you know we've had therapists just come in like today we have to get this 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 and this done and it's like that's cool that that's your world that you're living in but the reality of any of that carrying over to my world is not going to happen you know so it's just like a mismatch from the outset so there has to be this this somewhat meet in the middle and i'm not saying everybody has to be a therapist i'm not or you know like a psychotherapist i'm not you know relying on you to be my psychologist but just to to yeah just you know what what can we help you with specifically you know today just is is really helpful to just get make sure that everybody's on the same page you know and a lot of times when those questions come up the SLP or or, or the treating therapist knows of other resources out there that I may not even know about you know oh, oh if you're having trouble with this you know maybe bring in OT to help with this piece or dietary or you know a dietitian to bring in with this piece And I'm like oh you know and part of me is like oh my god I can't take another professional right now but sometimes if that's The missing link to help, you know, ease the burden for me and also, you know, get my son the breakthrough with the therapy that he needs, then more than happy to do it. And I feel like a lot of times those breakthroughs don't come up if we don't have these conversations, you know, if if we're just sticking with our therapy plan for the day, then sometimes those conversations don't come up. Mm So, but you know what I I think. Sorry, you go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. As I just was going to say, I think your guys' survey will be just so helpful in. And I keep saying opening the floodgates, and that's not the right term, but really just opening the doors to to having these conversations and, you know, striking up. Oh yeah, that that thing has been bugging me. That thing really is nagging me. Maybe
2: these people really could help us with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, something you said that I think um, really struck a chord is. So what if, you know, you can't take on one more therapist, but what if the model was this multidisciplinary approach? where the SLP brought that OT in to your session. So you didn't have one more thing on your plate, but they worked together in that session to show you how to do, you know, like I think that's the way we have to go. Instead of saying, you know, you need to attend this many more sessions and do this, this, and this. But how could we, in that one session that you're already attending, how can we maximize outcomes? You know, how can we work together in that one session? As, and as Samantha suggested, you know, maybe if you don't need to be physically present as a caregiver in that session, could you have your own, whatever session during that same time to maximize your time instead of expecting you to engage in something, you know, at 7 p.m. at night once your kids have gone to bed. So I think that's really what we would eventually love to see is this, you know, maximizing outcomes for both the caregiver and the care recipient by working together with other professionals.
1: And recognizing what we can offload from the family and from the caregivers. Because again, similarly, you know, is that a quick phone call that we can make for a family during the session? Rather than saying, okay, here's all the information, go reach out and contact them. Is that something that we can quickly do? That probably won't take very much time, but probably will have a huge impact by not adding one more thing to the list for that family to have to remember to do. And so, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like if there's one thing to take from all of this, it's really this idea of like, centering the family and then seeing what is it that we can do that really is meant to help the family. So not just narrowly looking at the patient, not just narrowly looking at, you know, the the speech pathologist and the patient, and that's the only relationship that really matters in dysphagia care, but really having the family at the center, thinking about who is all around them and what can we do? How can we all work around them to, you know, as you just said, Ashwini, maximize their outcomes and to also minimize the burden that's on them. Because I do think there's a lot of opportunity for things that we can be doing or things that we can be considering. And, and maybe it's a little more work on our part. But again, that little bit more work on our part probably has a huge impact on the family.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, And I think it's only a little bit more work when you're not used to doing it. Once you become when when it becomes natural, I don't know how much more work will, because you'll know all the resources. you'll know the person to call, right? So I think just thinking about this, and yeah, it's a, it's a lot of in on the front, a lot of work on the front end, but aren't so on the back end, but you know the the I don't know the word I'm looking for, but the benefits you know, will outweigh all of that in the long run. And I think, I mean, you know, what's so interesting is we actually did another review, a group of students worked with us to do another review looking at, you know, across speech language pathology, how are we supporting caregivers and and, and in this caregiver training? And and what are the models out there? And are we doing it? Not just specific to dysphagia. And what was so interesting is there are so many Studies that included caregivers, but they're not looking at caregiver outcomes. They're not saying, they're looking only at patient outcomes. So they're not looking at how we're offloading or how we're reducing any type of burden. So, I mean, I think that's something to keep in mind, you know, we're doing, we are doing caregiver training and we are doing parent training, but you know, how ultimately, we need to be looking at how is this helping the patient, but how is this also helping the caregiver that's doing most of the work? Yeah, I think I, I love this piece. I love what you
0: guys said so much. In it. And I think, I mean, truly, this is exactly the reality I'm living right now. I have two different therapists and, and the barrier of entry has been made nearly impossible with one of them. And the other one is helping us so much. And and the one, you know, it, it's, it's this intensive therapy program that we've been on this wait list to get into and they need a million things. They need you know, a report from the pediatrician, an x-ray. They need you know, a parent report from me. They just need the world. And I was like almost in tears when I saw this because I was like, I, like this is gonna take me forever, you guys. And immediately she was like, nope. She was like, let me call this person for you because we can get the x-rays. Let me call the pediatrician because we have access to get this. And she literally whittled the list down to like two things. And she's like, can you take care of this and this? And I was like, 100%, yes, I absolutely can do that. And then this other, this other side, this other therapist that we're trying to work with, it's just paperwork after paperwork after paper. Well, we need this on file. We need that on file. Well, you forgot to fax this by this deadline. So we miss that. And, and I just said to her, I was like, is there any, anything you can help me with? Like, I, I can't get past this barrier of entry to even work with you guys. Like, and, and it's just been so frustrating. And And so then I think, oh my God, I'm the world's crappiest mother because I'm denying my child this care with this therapist that I know she's able to help him. But on the other hand, we've now been, a- been able to go to this other therapist who's going to help him so much because they helped us. Right. Like mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. You know, and I know as therapists, I know as an SLP, sometimes it's like, gosh, I don't know that I have a minute to call that person or call that medical records, but find the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what else to say other than it, it, w- it would just help everybody so much if to do what you can do to help that family the tiniest bit. If you see somebody losing their mind,
2: if you know anybody that can help. Yeah. It's it's really worth it. Mm. I mean, I'm in Canada, so I think billing is not so much a an issue here, especially in the, our public healthcare system, but you know, most of the people who the SLPs who reported um responding to our survey looking at caregiver burden, they said that they can't bill for this time that they're spending, right? So I think I mean it shows that we need the systemic change to a, you know, there's so many things that SLPs do that is not direct patient time and that we could do. And, you know, how can we integrate that into that billing system so that they can actually, they have the time allotted to, you know, take care of some of the stuff that really ultimately helps
0: with their job. Yeah, yeah. It it is so hard and, and I know, you know, I know it's hard because being an SLP, you know, you kind of have to make those ethical decisions yourself. Like I have the patient sitting in front of me. They're asking me to make this phone call with them sitting in front of me. I'm going to do it. And I'm still with them. You know, it's like this absolutely should be part of our treatment, but is it, but you know, by somebody's standards, it's not by this payer's standards. It is, it's all Mm -hmm. over the freaking place, you Mm -hmm. know, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard because it is something that we do need to figure out a way to make better because it can just make the whole system better. You know, there's so much to be said about what a traditional treatment session should look like. And it doesn't have to be exercises for 50 minutes. If it's counseling the family, if it's helping them get to the next level of care, get them a device that they need, get them something. That's all 100%, 100%, if, if it
1: was up to me, <laughs> completely <laughs> part of that treatment session. So. And I think that's where continued research can help because I think if we can continue to show, here's the benefits on the caregiver. And, and again, it's this bit of a shift to a proactive model of care. you know, Here's the benefits on the caregiver. That means they're not experiencing health declines. That means care recipients can stay in their homes and not have to go into facilities like nursing homes because they do have caregivers who can help take care of them. That means these care recipients maintain better health. So if we have a better handle on those outcome measures, I think that too will help with some of the more systemic changes because then it's like, oh, yeah, we do need to care about caregivers. We do need to be able to integrate them into our care because we do have these longer term um, benefits of that on the other end. We'll keep doing this research, you guys, because <laughs> I,
0: I, I really, truly, there's such a, a place for it. You know, I, I think, yeah, if it can even just help to change what billing looks like for therapists and and help to reduce the caregiver burden, obviously, there's it's, it's very multifaceted, and I think it's wonderful work.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You know, the reason to also really pay attention to these informal caregivers is how much money it actually saves the healthcare system. So informal caregivers save the healthcare system about $470 billion annually. So that is because individuals are living at home and are able to receive care from informal caregivers. So it's a huge economic um, impact. the United States as well. And and we certainly see similar numbers across other countries.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and now with almost this new the new PDPM model shift, it's essentially they're they're dubbing it like sniff at home, essentially. So they're it's essentially moving skilled nursing care into the home, which I can only imagine how difficult that's going to be for caregivers just having, you know, therapists, nurses, doctors in and out of the house, you know, a few times a week. It's 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 tough. It's it's going to be, you know, is that what's best for the patient? That, that's, you know, probably to be debated, but is it going to be really tough on that caregiver? Absolutely. Is it going to help our payer system? Lord knows. Um, <laughs> I will tell,
2: I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess we have, we have a few recommendations that we say, you know, so we, our research has really just looked at identifying caregiver burden and we're trying to slowly get at how to address it but we've looked at other caregiver burden literature and we we tend to like to suggest some things that clinicians can implement immediately you know not based on our research but based on general research so there's a few things so one of them is providing basic education on the management of swelling impairment so many caregivers we've seen have report that they feel they receive inadequate support and education on how to best manage their care recipients dysphagia. So in general, healthcare professionals have been found to assume that family caregivers are capable of carrying out their caregiving duties. So they don't ask what additional resources they need and information is required, even if the caregivers feel like they can take on the responsibility. So just you know, providing that education, Um, also not bombarding the person with a lot of information right away, not assuming that they're taking everything in, you know, writing things down, handing them something, a piece of paper, following up is so important. We also have found across the literature that the education clinicians do provide to caregivers tends to be really medicalized and generic. So, it's really important that clinicians speak to patients and caregivers in layman's terms and avoid assuming that they do not know the details of the condition. So, you know, just making sure I know we all try to do this, and I'm probably speech pathologists do this better than other um, professionals, but, you know, making sure that really what we're seeing is simple and to the point and is concise. And then, as Samantha suggested earlier, really asking people how they're doing and tailoring that communication to care, the caregiver can result in better information processing and caregiver engagement. So, you know, those specific questions as Teresa suggested also before of, you know, you know, what about, are you having any issues with cleaning the tube feed? Are you having any issues with preparing these thickened liquids? Um, and asking those questions directly, being direct about it can make such a huge difference. Yeah.
1: I think, I mean, ultimately it's engaging caregivers in conversation, right? It's it's making them a part of the process and and including them and in engaging them. I love what you said too about not bombarding them, Ashwini.
0: Just last night, we had a call with my son's dietician and she's like, what about this, 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 and this? There was like five things. And I was like, whoa, I was like, I remembered two of those last week. And she was like, all right, let's work on the other two this week. I was like, okay, I can remember that. And usually she doesn't bombard us with things, but I have a relationship with her now that I was like, you can't give me that many things to do at once. Like I can change two things this week. I can't remember to change five things. So I, you know, I think whatever expectation, you really got to meet the family where they are. You know, if that family's okay with implementing a hundred things that week, that's great. If that family member is struggling
2: to remember one thing, then that's where
0: you've got to meet them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But I think it, you know, I think we mentioned it a little bit before, but you know, wouldn't you rather them do, do even one thing, not even two things, one thing really, really well, than do, you know, every like five things only a little bit or not at all. Right. So I really think, you know, it's just, it's just a different mindset and it's changing how maybe we were taught to do things to include you know, this, as you suggested before, compassion, a little bit more compassion mm-hmm. for those caregivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: It's almost like that habit stacking thing. You know, if you can get them
0: to do one thing really well, then we can right. add one thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, kind of like the kitchen sink method might not be, might be a little outdated yeah. at this point. Yeah. So. All right, you guys. I think this is wonderful. I I can't thank you guys enough for doing this work as both a mom and a fellow SLP. So thank you so much. I think this is awesome, and it's it's I think gonna help our field in a lot of a lot of different ways. So keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you yeah. so much for yes.
2: having us and you know, allowing us to share all this work. Yeah, yeah. We appreciate the opportunity. This was great.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks download the show notes from this episode please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com there you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode if you like what you hear then please subscribe leave a review on itunes and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming if you'd like to be a guest share feedback or request a topic to be discussed on the show please email podcast at teresarichard.com Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.